Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. One of the greatest questions for Jews and perhaps all of humanity in this century is the Holocaust. This is not just because the scale of the suffering and its proximity to our generation, but also because of the theological dilemmas that arise out of it. If we are God's chosen people, how could he have allowed this to happen to us? It's an event that seems unable to even fit with mainstream approaches offered, that suffering is an opportunity to mend one's ways, even if those ways were not the direct cause of the suffering, and we'll come back to that idea towards the end of the episode. And there are many academic questions that arise in discussing this topic. Is this really a unique historical event? Does it demand a unique theological response? Can we place it in any way into pre-existing answers that were offered before the scale of the Holocaust? Can we still believe in a God of history after this event? But perhaps the event just perpetuates the central question that we've been grappling with from the start of this series. How can we live existentially in a world where there is such extreme suffering or evil, seeming absurdity, and still find religious meaning and purpose? For this reason, we are dedicating an entire episode to the question of the Holocaust, because looking at some of the philosophical responses to the Holocaust may offer an additional window of response that may speak to some of us on a personal and existential level regarding other types of suffering that we've spoken about more in the first two episodes. You know, Tanya, as I think about the Holocaust, I think it's also very interesting that the question of how much the theological aspects of the Holocaust sort of like burn inside of someone, I think has a lot to do with their family culture. Um, I grew up in a family that was utterly, utterly in the shadow of Hitler. Uh, my father's entire family were Holocaust survivors, and he was simply born in a miraculous mistake that was famously told over and over again a few years after. But his siblings were all Holocaust survivors born during the war, um, also some of them as well. And, uh, you know, in that family culture, everybody survived because they didn't ask too many questions, meaning moving forward, functioning, um, living with nightmares, and definitely echoes of that experience in many, many different kinds of ways, but not sitting and asking theological questions because, that's sort of the privilege of those who maybe aren't in it or who gather enough space from it to be able to move beyond survival mode. Um, and I just, I just think that that, you know, I, we weren't a family that philosophized about the Holocaust, even though the Holocaust probably came up at like every single family event that we ever had. Um, so as someone who's philosophized a lot more about the Holocaust, I wanted to bring, bring that to you. So it's true that I've just finishing up my doctorate now, which is essentially on the Holocaust thought of uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Um, and majority, um, at least half, if not three quarters of my doctorate has been research on Holocaust theology. Um, but on a personal level, I'll also say that my family also all lived in the shadow of the Holocaust. Um, 
all of my grandparents um, were Holocaust survivors in one way or another. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather went through all the camps, lost all his family. Both my grandmothers came to England on the kinder transport from Germany and my paternal grandfather um, managed to escape Czechoslovakia and fought in the British army, Dufka. Um, and they were all um, very, very much affected by, and we, we were all informed in one way or another by the Holocaust as as my parents, as, as grandchildren. Um, so yeah, it's touched us. And, and I think, to be honest, my um, entrance into Holocaust theology came on the heels of experiences I had as a child in the shadow of my grandfather's Holocaust experiences. So I think we're all informed in one way or another. What's interesting is, and I wanted to just bring this up, is what you said is I live in a uh, Temani Moshav in a Yemenite Moshav in the center of Israel. And when it comes to Yom HaShoah, to Holocaust Memorial Day here in Israel, I find it extremely fascinating that when we do a tekes, we do a ceremony, a lot of the Yemenite families just, they don't come. They, it doesn't speak to them in, 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 it, you know, they, they obviously, um, they they respect it, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not a burning issue for them. It doesn't affect them. Um, so I think you're 100% right to point out that for those that actually had grandparents or parents that went through it, it affects them much greater. But one of the things that came up in my research, Yosef, and, and this is what you were saying, um, is that the responses, the theological responses, the philosophical responses happen really in the second generation. Um, if they come from any first generation um, people, then it's mostly people that didn't go through the Holocaust. Of course, you have first generation writers that did, for example, Eli Wiesel, Primo Levi, and plenty of others, but they are less philosophical than literary responses to the Holocaust. Um, and I think that really... Um, it kind of reflects what we were speaking about in the first two episodes, that when one is so deep in their suffering and so consumed by their suffering, their almost their prefrontal cortex doesn't, it can't approach it, right? There's no, you can't, you can't, you can't philosophize or even think theologically about your suffering because you are so intensely within it and what I find absolutely what came up in my research a lot is that even especially in America who you know there were a lot of survivors that came to America and in Israel as well that it was only after the Eichmann trials and certainly after 1967 especially in America which is even more fascinating that you begin to see a proliferation of responses to the Holocaust from a theological or a philosophical level and I think that in a sense, the Eichmann trials and then the 67 war, which was really a, it was the moment of confirmation that we're not going anywhere, that we have almost a happy ending, right? There's almost kind of that happy ending. So then the second generation felt ready to take center stage, to go back and reflect and ask the questions and, and, and perhaps face the theological dilemmas that the first generation just they were frozen. They were frozen. They were paralyzed, so to speak. All they cared about was survival. They had to survive. They had to move forward. They did not, they did not want to look back at the event. Yeah, totally. I think that the biological explanation about our brain functioning is, is really in place here. Uh, I think that it's really important to understand that. So here, here we stand, though. Yeah. Two generations later, 
uh, many decades later. And we want to take a little bit of time today to, yes, expose uh, ourselves and anybody listening to the different prisms that have been that have been offered to try and understand trying to understand the Holocaust. And I will say that, Tanya, I look at it as a privilege, meaning I look at it as a privilege to have been born in a different generation where we have enough time in our hands, emotional space to be able to devote to questions like these, uh, which, as we know from these kind of explorations, don't necessarily lead us to a a peaceful place. Um, There's something not really at peace, but almost seemingly at peace when someone can address them, right? If you just run away from them or, again, don't have the availability within oneself to address them that creates a certain kind of um, of stasis. Uh, but we're looking at it from our vantage point today, which is where we have the ability to talk about these things. 100%. And I, it just, Yosef, I wanted to bring in, it reminds me of this story that, again, Rabbi Sachs as uh, speaks about, that he once um, was speaking to a Holocaust survivor, I can't remember exactly the name of the Holocaust survivor, but the, he said to him, he said, tell me, you don't have any questions? You know, he, he continued this Holocaust survivor as a religious Jew and, and a pious and, and, and very much... Um, almost submissive Jew that continued doing what he had always done. And he, and Rabbi Sachs says, do you not have any questions? And he says, he said to him in his very strong accent, of course I have questions. He answered, I have so many questions. He said, I am scared to even ask the questions because if I ask the questions, they are so great and so all consuming that God will take me up there to give me the answers. And I would rather be down here with the questions than up there with the answers. And I, I really feel that that story to me it really in some senses accompanies me on my journey you know into this as as an academic researcher um that I constantly had that that in the back of my head swirling around saying at the end of the day if a survivor himself turns around and says there's no answers here but I'd rather be down here than up there I'd rather be in this world still working to rectify you know, as we left it last week with the Midrash, right, to rectify the burning palace, that's where I, that's kind of always, always accompanies me on my journey of this, of this trying to search for the answer when knowing there really is no answer. But as, as we said from the beginning, we're going to offer some responses. And in that light, um, I want to ask the question again. And I, I, I think the issue of the Holocaust, in a sense, forces us, forces even the most obedient, submissive Jew to an extent to question right um it may be and we may say you know and i've heard it from plenty of people what is the difference in an abstract way the dilemma is no different really to the suffering of one innocent child or destruction of the temple or the crusades or all any other suffering that we've had throughout the history of the jewish people and there's you know we've had plenty of that take take your pick yeah take your pick exactly why is the holocaust any different right um so we could argue maybe it was the scale of suffering maybe it was the the method of suffering whatever it happens to be but i i think if to go back to our original analogy of climbing the second mountain right how do we exit the valley and climb the second mountain of meaning can we can we find meaning or dare we right is it almost sacrilege to find meaning in the holocaust in the the extent of suffering that that we went through and i think in order to do in order to do so we there's two things that we're searching for we're searching for an answer or or i should ask what are we searching for yourself are we searching for an answer right which is which is one way of understanding it's what we call epistemological right it's knowledge are we looking 
to know why God allowed the Holocaust to happen, okay, or are we searching for the answer through lived truth, right, through living, right? And that will, we call that existential, meaning can I find something that allows me to live with this terrible shadow that is, you know, hanging over me? Um, and I think we're going to try and, 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 and by the way, the responses to the Holocaust are either epistemological or existential. I mean, there's some others as well, but generally speaking, they're either answering the why question or they're answering the how. How can I live yeah, with I was going to say, it's another way of exactly saying what we've said until now. It's either the why or the how. And I, I personally definitely have, I'm drawn towards the, the, uh, um, the living, right? Or how, how how can I move forward from here? But there are many, many people who are drawn towards the towards the uh, epistemological, right? Of of you know, yeah, why of why, right? The answer, yeah. the answer, trying to find an answer. So I want to, so I wanted um, to to bring a bit of a, a little bit of philosophy here, and to quote um, a dilemma uh, originally voiced by an ancient Greek philosopher called Epicurus, but summarized by much later on by David Hume. And he says like this, he says, I'm going to read it slowly because it takes a minute to sink in, right? Is God... Thank you. I appreciate it. You need to read it slowly for me. (laughs) Just for you. Um, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent, meaning he's evil. Is he both able and willing? Then from whence comes evil? Meaning if he is all of those things, then where does evil come from? In other words, and here here I want to try and and we're getting a bit technical, I know, but it's going to be important for us as we try and understand. If if we believe God is good and he's all powerful, then where does evil come from? It can't possibly be from him, right? Which is the question also that Sefer Breshid asked, but we'll leave Sefer Breshid on the side for now. Right. Yeah. So number one, we've got suffering that occurs in the world. So first and foremost, evil occurs in the world. We know that. Okay, empirically, we can see that there's evil, that there's suffering in the world. Number two, we have a belief in a morally omnipotent, benevolent, omniscient being, meaning a God that is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, right? Who would not allow unjustified evil to occur, meaning what we're saying in, in the second statement is God is not just going to... um uh willy-nilly allow evil to happen there's meaning there's meaning and purpose that comes with believing in a theistic god in a god that is um all-knowing all-powerful etc and then statement three there is no morally justifiable reason for an omnipotent omnibenevolent omniscient being to necessitate or facilitate such horrible suffering. Meaning if we believe that there is empirically evil in the world and we believe that God is all good, all knowing, etc., there can't be a reason for him to allow this evil to happen. Okay, so this is the dilemma. Was that kind of clear, Yosefa? Okay, so I think I'm going to bring for you two extreme responses to the dilemma in the spectrum of post-Holocaust theology. Before you move on, I just want to say one thing, which is that this, you know, philosophical piece is the piece that we've basically been addressing the entire time. We just haven't necessarily put it in these words, right? We're trying to figure out, 
you know, where do we put God into this is also a question of, so where does the bad come from? Is the bad from God? If it's from God, then how do we, how do we understand that God? Right. So these are, this is a more philosophical, um, frame and phrasing, but it's, it's, it's really speaking to what we've been asking the entire time. A hundred percent. It's definitely speaking to that. And I'm also presenting it to you from two very different extremes, meaning I'm going to present to you the classic refrain that we have been addressing. And in some senses, I guess yourself, let's, let's be, let's be very, um, uh, what's the word? Cut. My head is not with me today. I don't know what is wrong with me. Well, I'm trying to say like we're, we're rejecting this sin and punishment. Let's be very real, but that wasn't the word I was looking for. What I'm saying is that in the podcast, we're looking at the periphery responses. We're not looking at the central traditional response of sin and punishment, or we're not accepting that as a response. Um, and I think, Yosefa, let's be very transparent. In the podcast that we've been recording, we've, we've been looking more to periphery theologies. We haven't been... Um, towing the line with the classic refrain of sin and punishment. But that is very much the immediate response to the Holocaust from within the Haredi world. In the Haredi world, for example, we have the Satmarebi Raviel Teitelbaum um, in his book, Vior Moshe. And in that book, he blames the secular Zionists. There's a lot, again, to go back to that idea that we looked at, a lot of blame and a lot of shame. He blames the secular Zionists. He bases the entire um, response to the Holocaust on the in the framework of reward and punishment um and therefore what he does is and to go back to those three statements that we made he finds a morally justifiable reason for god allowing evil to occur he says yes there is a justifiable reason for the holocaust and that is because god is punishing the secular zionists or anybody who decided of their own accord and their own agency to return to the land of Israel. Okay, so that's one extreme, and that very much stays within the classic refrain of sin and punishment. other response is radical theology and that takes place with Richard Rubenstein who wrote uh, not 1964 he wrote in 1966 after Auschwitz and he really was the first person to open the floodgates of of philosophical response to the Holocaust Um, and in many many ways a lot of people are responding to him a lot of people that write afterwards because what did Rubenstein say Rubenstein bases his ideas of the Holocaust or his theology of the Holocaust, I would say, or philosophy of the Holocaust, on the notion that we are the covenantal relationship that we have with God. We are God's chosen people. And straight, very soon after the Holocaust, he goes and he meets with a Christian pastor called Dean Gruber. And Dean Gruber says, well, if you were God's chosen people, then this must be the will of God. God must have willed that you would have six million people die. And he says as follows, and I'm going to actually quote it word for word because I think it's very, very pertinent. He says, if I believed in God as the omnipotent author of the historical drama and Israel as its chosen people, I had to accept Dean Gruber's conclusion that it was God's will that Hitler committed six million Jews to slaughter. I could not possibly believe in such a God, nor could I believe in Israel as the chosen people of God after Auschwitz. Okay. 
what does Richard Rubenstein do? Throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's exactly what he does. He essentially, <laughs> but, but you know what, Yosefa, it goes back to what we, we haven't, I haven't really addressed this idea of theodicy, but I, I just want to address it. I don't want to get too into it, but I think it's super important to understand what's happening with Richard Rubenstein. We've spoken a lot in the last two podcasts about the idea of God and evil and how can we equate and reconcile the, 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 the problem. When we talk about the idea of theodicy, okay, theodicy essentially comes and explains or justifies either evil or God, right? So we've got evil that exists in the world, and we've got this good, all-loving, all-knowing God, okay, theistic God, okay, is, is the God that we believe that is all-powerful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we equate the two? So we've got, we can either get rid of the evil and say, you know what, evil doesn't really exist, it's all really good, it's just a veil, okay, and there are a lot of religions that do believe that, um, but, or, and the other option, is we can say God doesn't exist. And then again, we've got rid of the dilemma because, okay, evil exists in the world, but evil is just a result of it's arbitrary, right? It, it just happens. Okay, either there's a cause, a natural cause, or it's just someone gets run over. Oh, whoops, that happened. There's nothing we can do about it. It's very arbitrary, right? The Holocaust happened, that happened because it was caused by X, Y, Z. Arbitrary explanation. No over-encompassing metaphysical reason or divine um, divine uh, power that's, that's managing the events, right? That's exactly what Richard Rubenstein, that's the dilemma he's facing. He's saying, if I believe that we're the God's chosen people, then it must be that this was God's will. But how can I believe in such a God? Pack it all up. Get rid of one of the premises. One of the premises I've get I've gotten rid of, but and then evil just exists. Now it's I don't want to get into it here, but it's fascinating as Richard Rubenstein, even though he seems to throw the baby out with the bathwater, what he does is he still holds tight to Jewish ritual and Jewish um, tradition because he says when we're living in a and by the way, the, the language he uses, and this is also super important, he uses Nietzsche's language, the death of God. He calls it the era of the death of God. And he says, I'm not saying what happened literally. I'm not saying God died. I'm using it as cultural commentary. We believed in this God. And now because of the Holocaust, it's impossible for us to believe in such a God. And therefore, Let's take God out of the picture. What he creates is a cultural religion. Because why? Because when, and here, Yosef, I get to what we've been speaking about. When we are alone in our suffering, what do we need? We need somebody else. And so he says, we can't now, we're, we're, we're alone. We're orphans in a lonely world. And therefore, we need the community to get us through. And so he doesn't throw out the tradition and the rituals and the coming together of community. He still embraces that, but he gets rid of a theistic God. Yeah. I mean, again, we, of course, the test of time there, it's, it's rough. It's rough to keep the tradition and the culture without the, without the theology. It's, that's just a reality of, uh, of religious life. Yeah. But an understandable response based on 
on those on those premises, right? If that's your premises, then the conclusion is understandable. A hundred percent. And I actually think, and, and here I take my hat off to Richard Grimes. I mean, of course, he came under immense criticism, right? Obviously, from all directions, by the way, not just from the religious. Um, but I take my hat off to him because he had the courage to bring language to this dilemma of the Holocaust. No, but there had been an overarching silence for decades. Unbelievable. Yeah. For decades following the Holocaust. You, yes, you had the Haredi response, but again, it wasn't a response that spoke outside the Haredi world. No, it was in those internal books. And eventually exactly. those books had broader circulation, but it wasn't meant to be a response for the world. You're saying that he, he said, let me, let me respond. I'm going to put some, put a statement out there. Correct. And get the conversation rolling. Exactly. Now, the other person who helped to do that was someone called Hannah Arendt. Um, when she wrote Eichmann on trial after the Eichmann trial, she was a journalist and she, together with Rich Rubenstein, I think both of them sh- um, should merit the, the uh, uh, understanding that they bought the language, the Holocaust, the word Holocaust, right? It didn't come necessarily from them. It came slightly earlier, but even the ideas that they spoke about, how can one, it was almost sacrilege. People said, how can I philosophize about the Holocaust? You know, what am I doing to all of those people that died? You know, am I, am I witnessing their, their suffering? Am I not by speaking about it? And Richard Rubenstein opened those floodgates. Now, what happens when he does that? What happens then we have a, a, a whole variety of responses that come afterwards. And again, we don't have time in this podcast. And again, I don't want this podcast just to be about responses to the Holocaust. We definitely don't have time to get into all of the various responses. And there are so many of them. But I think that one of the things that we we do need to grapple with here, and, and I think important for us when we're talking about suffering, is um, the question of what from what premise are they starting exactly as you said so Richard Rubenstein is basing his response on the very logical problem of evil as we presented it through David Hume and and Epicurus that logical problem and his response is logically the holocaust invites our response to be negative meaning we have to get just get rid of God because it doesn't make sense bring another response i i think that um want to bring a response from the writings of eliezer berkowitz who if anyone listening is not familiar with his writings really really suggest it uh he's a really important um modern religious thinker um and he himself has an interesting life story but i want to bring something from his he also wrote a response to the holocaust it's called faith after the holocaust it's an entire full-length book um, and I just want to read one excerpt from there. And I, I want us to read this because A, it is very theotic, meaning it really tries to remain in the framework of a lot of the more familiar frames from the Torah. And because I also think that it has something to offer us beyond the immediate context of the Holocaust. Uh, and he says as follows. 
We have great understanding for the fact that God is merciful and forgiving, that he does not judge man harshly and is willing to have patience with him. God is waiting for the sinner to find his way to him. This is how we like to see God. This is how we are only too glad to acknowledge him. But we never seem to realize that while God waits for the sinner to turn to him, there is oppression and persecution and violence among men. Yet there seems to be no alternative. If man is to be, God must be long-suffering with him. He must suffer man. This is the inescapable paradox of divine providence. While God tolerates the sinner, he must abandon the victim. While he shows forbearance with the wicked, he must turn a deaf ear to the anguished cries of the violated. This is the ultimate tragedy of existence. God's very mercy and forbearance, his very love for man, necessitates the abandonment of some men to a faith that they may well experience as divine indifference to justice and human suffering. It is the tragic paradox of faith that God's direct concern for the wrongdoer should be directly responsible for so much pain and sorrow on earth. We conclude, then, that he who demands justice of God must give up man. He who asks for God's love and mercy beyond justice must accept suffering. Now, I wanted to specifically read that la- those last two lines because they 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 bring a completely different premise. If the premise we saw by um, by Rubenstein is that if there is such evil and and uh, and Israel is a chosen people, then it must be that God isn't there pulling the strings because He wouldn't have let this happen. And and Eliezer Berkowitz brings a totally different equation, and he says that. If God is, what does it mean, long-suffering? We say, Erech right? God is slow to anger. These are all language that's taken from the from the 13 attributes of mercy that we are given in Sefer Shmot, but in Moshe's encounter with God, and it's repeated all throughout Tanakh and all throughout our liturgy, um, that if our premise is that God, in fact, doesn't immediately strike down the sinner, right? God gives man time to repent, then while while God is giving man time to repent, he's going to do bad things in the meanwhile. He's going to make other people suffer. And so he says our formula has to be different. If God is long-suffering, then other men will suffer at the hand of humans while God is waiting for that person to do tshuva. Uh, and and this is, is very much an answer, uh, sorry, a response, that remains within the more familiar framework of what we have what we have for the Torah. I don't think his premise is different from Rubenstein. I think his response is different. Rubenstein's looking for, the premises are the same. He's still working within the same premise, right? Meaning evil exists in the world and God God is all powerful. God is a theistic God. He, He believes in the same premises. Am I right? Yeah, except that he's saying that you have to remember that this God, who is all good, that includes also being someone who doesn't strike people down the minute they do something bad. Right. So my point is that what Berkowitz is doing, and by the way, Berkowitz definitely is responding to Rubenstein, even though he never names him. He's definitely responding to him because he mentions him not by name a few times. But what Berkowitz is doing here is he's he is um, almost defending God. Okay, he's saying we don't need to do what Rubenstein did. We don't have to get rid of one of the premises. We can still maintain both of those premises and find a way of reconciling it without having to justify evil 
or explain evil and explain God. But, and here you're saying that I, I do believe that he does still try to explain God to us because what he's saying here is that the way in which God works, the way in which God allows the world to work naturally will, um, will, will, will create a premise by which evil will continue to function. Okay. Because if I, Allow for teshuva, and here you haven't brought that word in, but he does use that word in other places. If I allow man to repent, um, the timescale of repentance fixed into that timescale is the point at which more evil can be done. Okay, now, does this work with the Rambam, Yosefa? The Rambam that we mentioned in the previous episode. Yeah, in the previous episode, we mentioned the Rambam and his naturalistic way of understanding the world and saying that there's certain things that happen, that we're made of matter and that man has vices, etc., etc. And we weren't happy with that because it didn't really leave space for divine providence. But I'm beginning to think that Berkowitz here actually in a sense, allows for the Rambam's explanation to work together with divine providence. I definitely don't think they contradict each other, but I think that, I think that the, the, again, the premise of, of Berkowitz's writing here is a premise that is starting and ending with God. The Rambam took God a little bit out of the picture. He was starting and ending with man. He sort of wasn't going towards the God piece. He does it in many other places, just not in the piece that we brought last time. I think here, I don't think they contradict each other. I think that they both can fit in, but certainly in terms of the second kind of evil that the Rambam brought up that man does to another man, which we would call those, you know, inappropriate, sinful behaviors. That's where Berkowitz's idea would come in and he would say, sure, right? God allows people to create war because he's not, he's not stopping these things. He's, he's waiting patiently. He's the, he's the patient parent. If we can go back to all the metaphors we've been using. Uh, I don't think it contradicts. I think it's particularly relevant though to, to the, uh, to the second and third kind of evils that the Rambam is bringing in, the evils that people commit to go on against each other and also what we commit with ourselves. Okay. And, and so my question to you is that if that is the case, surely though still the Holocaust is an example where we would say, well, hold on a minute. Even when six million are dying, you know, is he not going to intervene? You know, how, to me, it still, it still smacks of a malevolent God and not a benevolent God. Um, in the sense that to what degree do we allow the sinner to come at the, it's almost that, you know, very often you have a kid that comes back and saying, it's not fair. I'm a good kid, but the teacher's allowing the, you know, wants the bad kid to become better. So she gives more um, attention to the bad kid rather than giving attention to the good kid, right? To what extent in Berkowitz's um, paradigm or Berkowitz's explanation, so to speak, um, what role does that good person have anymore? Um, and, and to me, it just seems to be that he, the good person who's suffering, who's being killed, who's being tortured, who's being maimed by these evil people who, for which God has given space to return. Do I want that kind of God? Do I want that kind of world? You know, I just, I want to take it one step back, by the way, and, and just point out to people very often. And I know whenever I, I teach Berkowitz, I always say, I always begin by saying, you've definitely heard what he said, but you don't definitely know it comes from him. Okay. Berkowitz always says, when we talk about the Holocaust, 
don't ask where was man, sorry, don't ask where was God, ask where was man, right? That's Berkowitz's, um, that's Berkowitz's philosophy. And that comes from Berkowitz. And I think there's something immensely powerful about that because in a sense, it allows us still to grab on to both pillars. It allows us to grab onto the pillar that says evil really exists and it's really there. And it allows us to grab onto the pillar of saying, I believe in a providential theistic God, right? And actually I can have both. I don't have to try and give up one or the other. I don't have to pretend evil doesn't exist and I don't have to say God doesn't exist. Yeah, but that also, again, Tanya, if bringing in that that piece, which we didn't read out loud here, is to, again, bring in the naturalistic side, meaning where was man is saying, let's blame man for the things that man did and not only blame God. Is that not also a blaming piece um, or taking responsibility, however we want to say it? Yeah, 100%. I think what Berkowitz is, is, is and that's why, that's why I asked you the question, because I, I do think that Berkowitz's explanation works quite well with the Rambam, because I think in a sense what Berkowitz is saying is that God has almost... He he talks about God as a, the hiding God, right? The um, the hiding face of God, and he says very often in our liturgy or in our in our in the in the Bible, when we talk about God hiding His face, we're talking about it as God punishing His people. He said, but there's another place, and he brings up where in one of the Tehillim, where we don't talk about God as a punishing God hiding His face, but we talk about God as just hiding His face as a natural way of the world, right? That that in order for us to be truly free, in order for us to truly have free will, God has to hide. If God's hovering over us and we're seeing him all the time and the minute we sin, we're going to be punished, we are never truly free individuals. We really don't have, we really don't have true liberty. The only way we can be truly, truly free is if we are given the space to be free individuals and not to have God coming down and punishing us the minute we sin. So if we look at it from that framework, yes, it works very well with the Rambam. There is certainly a natural kind of Berkowitz is handing to us this naturalistic way of human free will in the world of, 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 of natural consequences to our actions. And in the middle of all of that, we're going to have suffering and evil because people are not always going to choose to do the right thing. People are not always going to choose the right path and people are going to choose to do evil or choose to make other people suffer. I want to bring in uh, Yosef, uh, another one of the most important post-Holocaust philosophers, um, Emil Fackenheim. Um, Emil Fackenheim um, talks about the idea of, um, he rejects, he rejects the Odyssey totally. Um, Berkowitz perhaps rejects it a little bit, but Fackenheim absolutely rejects the idea of bringing any explanation, any why to the Holocaust. Um, And he talks about the idea of his most famous idea is the idea of the 614th commandment. And the 614th commandment is the idea that we cannot, we must not hand Hitler a posthumous victory, meaning the only message that we can take out from the Holocaust is to continue to survive, to survive as Jews, to continue to move forward and to live. Um, for him, the Holocaust is absolute rupture. It's a rupture in Jewish thought. It's a rupture in Jewish theology. and Faith was totally shattered, but he looks, his response, he argues that his response doesn't come from theology. It doesn't come from those premises 
to which Berkowitz and Rubenstein respond, but rather it's an existential response. So again, we started this by talking about an epistemological response, a response to the question of why, trying to understand, trying to know. And we said that both Berkowitz and Rubenstein, and to an extent, and also obviously the Haredi response, all work within that framework. Fackenheim responds from a very different framework. He responds from a framework that we've been kind of alluding to the whole way along, which is the framework of how do I live with this shattering? How do I live with this rupture? How do I existentially move forward? And his response, he argues, comes from the people. He says, if we look at what happens after the Holocaust, he says both the secular and the religious and every single Jew in between seemed to be responding to and as if, right, in Hebrew say ki'ilu, and as if a voice coming out of Auschwitz, which was commanding them, do not hand Hitler a posthumous victory. Now, he is very much strongly influenced. He says it himself. He's strongly influenced by Elie Wiesel. He says he looks to Elie Wiesel, and Elie Wiesel offered for him um, the greatest way of responding to the Holocaust. Instead of burying himself instead of trying and seeking all the why questions. He continued to live. He continued to move forward and he continued to, um, to fight against evil in the world, fight against any type of evil and suffering that he saw in the world. And he says that to him is the meaning. He says, you want to find meaning from the Holocaust. It's not by asking the why it happened and offering a simple, almost neat uh, answer. He says the way is to find resilience, to survive, to flourish. That is the response in and of itself. That is the meaning in and of itself. Okay, for Fackenheim, thought fails. Why theodicy explaining? It's all going to fail in response to the sheer incomprehensible evil that happened in the Holocaust. The only response we can have, says Fackenheim, is silence. And then after we have had that silence and know that there's no epistemological response, then we have to grapple with how we live existentially. And he says the people responded through building the lands of Israel, through continuing to survive, through choosing to be Jewish, even when it made no logical sense to continue to be Jewish. And that for him was the response. And I think it's a beautiful way of understanding. There's a lot of philosophical debate about Fackenheim and there's much more to his philosophy than I can possibly present in three minutes right but I think just for the sake of our podcast what I've presented here um, works very much in what we've been speaking about we've been speaking about the idea of the central responses in Judaism that worked for many centuries okay the biblical responses that took primary um primary stage, so to speak, in our grappling with the problem of evil. And those central responses were primarily based on the why question and offered in some ways a boxed answer. The problem of evil is solved through rewards and punishment, sin and punishment, right? We can understand it through the prism of God coming down. This this world and the next world. Yeah, or this world, exactly. Another one. This world and the next world is another classic response. And what we've tried, I think, Yosefa to do over the last three episodes is to touch on the periphery theologies, to touch on theologies that are not necessarily mainstream and to argue that maybe in today's era, and the Holocaust is really one of those things that I think that 
throws us into looking at periphery responses, which, by the way, maybe are not even periphery, by the way, because I think even like we said yourself in the Bible itself, in the Torah itself, there are actually responses that we could argue are central, but were never taken as central for Chazal who lived during Galut and their existence, their whole existence was wrapped up with the idea of rewards and punishment. They were in Galut because they were being punished. So that whole framework was kind of hovering over them the whole time. Now that we're in our modern state of Israel and on the heels of the Holocaust, I think we almost have the privilege um, and by the way, also maybe the courage to expand into those periphery frameworks that took a sidestep over the centuries and to bring them back to the fore. And I want to just finish um, the, the part that we've been looking at Fackenheim with to go back to, again, one of our periphery theologies, one of our periphery sources, I should say, which is the book of Eov. You know, it, it really doesn't make sense that at the end of the book, it almost feels like they're trying to whitewash everything that happened to him, uh, that he get at the end of the book, we're told he gets remarried and he has the same amount of children again with a new wife. And almost, it's like almost like a fairy tale and he lives happily ever after. But I think in a post-Holocaust age, that epilogue um, actually speaks to us more than ever before. And it's, to me, it's exactly what Fackenheim's philosophy is about. It's about this idea of, you know what? There's no happy ending. We're still shattered and we're still in pieces and we're still tormented and we're still in trauma. But yet somehow we have managed to piece together all our fragments to, in order to survive, in order to move forward, in order to take Judaism with us and say, how are we going to grow from this? How are we going to flourish once again from this? And that to me is the epilogue of Eov. It's not that it's a happy ever after and it whitewashes everything that happens. No, the, the broken luchot are always there in the Aram with the, with the, with the whole luchot, right? It, they're always there. The brokenness never goes away. It's always part of who we are. But in a sense, it allows us to know how to climb that second mountain again, how to existentially live with that trauma and yet still move forward. And that to me is what, what one of the ideas um, that Fackenheim pertinently brings to us in, in the post-Holocaust spectrum of, of, of philosophy and, and response. You know, it also reminds me of something that uh, Rav Soloveitchik writes, even though, ironically, he writes before yeah. Rubenstein and Fackenheim. Yeah. Uh, he writes in 1956 in his in his work, uh, in English is translated as Fate and Destiny, and in Hebrew it's called Kolodidofik. Um, and, and he, he says it's a really important work. He speaks about in general the, the change, the sweeping changes in Jewish history that happened in, you know, post Holocaust, um, and frames them through the metaphor of Shir Shirim, of the Song of Songs with the knocks on the door of the beloved. Um, but he also in that, in that um, essay, really tr grapples with evil. Uh, he really grapples with how do we understand it, how do we frame it, and he says something that really supports a lot of what we what we've said until now. We do not inquire about the hidden ways of the Almighty, but rather about the path wherein man shall walk when suffering strikes. We ask neither about the cause of evil nor about its purpose, but rather about how it might be mended and elevated. How shall a person act in a time of trouble? What ought a man to do so that he not perish in his afflictions? Now, remember, based on what you said until now, Tanya, that he was not writing in a cultural milieu where people were openly grappling with the Holocaust. So this itself, by the way, is also a, a unique 
uh, a unique piece of writing. Um, and he says that we, you know, we really can't ask that question. He also draws a direct connection between the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel, which, you know, people have different feelings about. But, um, but he says, we don't ask the, the lama. We don't ask the why question. We try and move forward. He says, we don't ask lama, ele, lama. We ask lima, lima. For what? Um, and it's interesting because when I was in, when I did my trip to Poland when I was 18 in my year in seminary, I remember that that, that was the Dvar Torah that our Rosh Hashiva said in the shul in, I think we were in Warsaw Krakow. for Shabbat. Uh, and that was the, that was, we were in Krakow. That was, that was the, um, that was given of right we don't ask lama we don't come and see all of this destruction and and ask why but we ask for what where do we where do we go from here um he does say though that the function of suffering is to mend a flawed personality meaning without drawing a direct correlation between why somebody suffered uh, and what they need to do afterwards, he does say that when people go through hard things, it's supposed to stir us to repent. Although I believe that he also writes there that it's supposed to stir us to repent without driving us crazy existentially. I Meaning it's not that we have to go and search and find out exactly what we're doing wrong, but it gives us an opportunity to improve our ways without drawing a direct cor- correlation between what we did and that the fact that we were punished. Uh, meaning he leaves out the scharva onesh piece, but says that it's supposed to, we're supposed to look at our ways and try and do better. But from there, we're supposed to move forward. We're supposed to live with, uh, with a, um, a mind frame of, of moving forward and growing from that space on. You know, as Tanya, as we're speaking about this in this episode, in the past episode, I, I keep feeling like we're running away from some of, you know, we're running away from the dilemma. Not just us, meaning thinkers throughout the generations. Um, but then I keep saying, no, we're not really running away. We're not, we're not running away from it. It's just that there aren't any, there aren't, there isn't ever going to be an explanation. It's, it's the way of the world. And so I'm, I'm sharing that out loud, that sort of self-conscious piece that's going yeah. on inside of my, my head as we speak, because I'm sure that other people might also think about it. And it's not a running away. It's simply that it, it doesn't, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. And if you go there, it ha- there are certain endings that you can get to, but they're not necessarily ones that are going to bring any greater peace or any clarity. I think it's really, really important for us to, to, to state here. And, and again, also what was going on when you were speaking was just because there isn't necessarily an answer, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask the questions. And I think one of the greatest you know, again, in the parashat that we're reading, one of the greatest examples of that is when Abraham, when God invites Abraham to argue with him about Stom. Now, it's a foregone conclusion, right? We know in the end, God's going to destroy them. Abraham's got no influence. It's like foregone before it even starts. So why does he invite Abraham to argue with him? And I think that is so essential to human nature and to human needs that we are questioning. We are meaning seeking and questioning animals. That's who we are. And if we are not allowed to express that, then we've, we actually lose a sense of self. And I think that, you know, someone say, well, why bother question if you know that the answer is, you're never going to have an answer. But I definitely think that that's exactly what we've been drawing out here. 
you're right, maybe a closed answer in the sense of an epistemological response, right? A response to the question of why and a response cognitively, right? That works, that everything fits into place. Maybe that kind of answer, you're right, we're never going to have. But when we ask the question, it opens up something inside which allows us to touch on varying responses. And those responses, they may not answer the cognitive question of why with a very neat answer, but what they do is allow us to answer the question of how. How can I live with this? How can I move forward? And more importantly, how can I make meaning from my suffering? How can I allow myself to take my suffering? This is actually to me what Rav Soloveitchik is saying here. When he brings the idea of suffering allows us to to do tshuva it's not in the classic sense of sin and punishment and let's list all the things we've done wrong and metaken and everything will be fine and then we're never going to suffer again it's the idea of tshuva as a return to our core to our source to allow us to know how do i find meaning how do i grow how do i and um what's her name in option b uh, cheryl sandberg speaks a lot about this idea of post-traumatic growth what does it mean to grow she says i would never want my husband know cheryl sandberg the ceo of facebook she wrote this incredible book called option b after her after her husband tragically passed away at a young age and she was left with two children on her own and in that book she says if you would tell me I would get Dave back tomorrow, I, I take him back tomorrow. I would never want this tragedy to have happened. However, now that it has happened, how do I find meaning? How do I grow from that trauma? And I think to me, that's what Rob Soloveitchik is saying here. When he talks about the idea in, in the same essay, he speaks about the idea of covenant of fate and covenant of destiny, existence of fate and existence of destiny. When we live in an existence of fate where we say, Everything that happens to me, I have no control over and there's nothing I can do about it, right? That kind of existence leads to passivity. It leads me to being frozen and not being able to do anything. But when I live in an existence of destiny where I say, against my will, I was born, against my will, I die, but through my free will, I live, there's an element of things that I recognize are out of my control. But there's a part, there's a small part of me that can control. Like I go, when we go back to that kind and heaven narrative that we saw in the first episode, where God turns around to kind and says to him, will you make good of this? You know, you've got no control over what happened to you, but how are you going to respond to it? To me, that's what Rav Soloveitchik is talking about when he asks us to repent. When he says to us, how are you going to respond to this tragedy? How are you going to respond to your suffering? How are you going to respond to the fate that's been thrown upon you? And in a sense, what the way that I see it is that Rav Soloveitchik, even though he was writing chronologically before Fackenheim, in a sense, Rav Soloveitchik takes Fackenheim's response, which Fackenheim is basically saying to us, survivors, Jews, you're all part of one people. You've all responded in a similar way. You've all responded by surviving. And Rav Soloveitchik takes what Fackenheim says, which is a covenant of fate, essentially. Fackenheim saying we're all fated to the same destiny and we've all fated in the same response. And he moves it to one level further. He says, it's not just about surviving for the sake of surviving, says Rav Soloveitchik after the Holocaust. It's about saying, how are we going to find meaning and how are we going to move forward? And how are we going to have that post-traumatic growth, both on a personal level and on a national level? Yeah, and I, I think that um, just to conclude for today, 
that another book that's really important to mention in this conversation is a book called On Meaning, which is written by uh, by David Kessler. And David Kessler was the uh, you know student co-researcher with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with the five stages of grieving, which many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with. Uh, and he uh, wrote a book after the pretty tragic passing of his son. You know, he'd spent years researching grief and speaking with thousands of people. And, and then his, his, uh, cause he himself also experienced a very traumatic experience and the death of his mother at a young age. And then he, later on in life, his 20 year old son also passed away. And he wrote a book called On Meaning. And, and I think maybe we'll, we'll try and reference it again in the future. But the basic idea being that the sixth stage is the meaning stage. Uh, Rav Salvechik, right, he, he doesn't talk about it in stages, but he speaks about lima. Lima is the meaning stage, uh, or the post-traumatic growth, which is another great way to put it. But what I do want to emphasize here, Tanya, and with this will end, is that that stage, while the stages don't really have to be linear and all the research shows that not everyone goes to every stage and uh, et cetera, et cetera, that it is important to note that the questioning stage, whether that's your bargaining or it's your anger, or that that stage, I think, is very important to come before the meaning. Meaning we, we shouldn't take Rev Salvechik and then say, oh, well, something bad happens. Okay, what do I do with it now? No, it's okay. People can have their time to mourn and to grieve and to sit in that space, and they need it to be witnessed. They need people to see it and not try and make it better and add their silver lining. But but eventually, eventually, I think our goal should be to make it to that place of meaning uh, and ask where where can we go from here and how can we how can we do things informed and uh, without ignoring the the loss or the immenseness of the tragedy in the case of the Holocaust. I don't know, the word tragedy doesn't even really, it's not a good descriptive word. The immensity of the atrocity. Uh, and how do we move from there in, in a more informed way? I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Studies. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.